So I want you to think back to some of the biggest turning points in your life. The biggest turning points in your life. You may be going back to high school graduation. Uh, You may be going back uh, to a time when you lost a loved one. Uh, You may be going back to your wedding day. Um, But I I go back to kind of all three of those times. Uh, I've got some pictures up here uh, of when I graduated high school. Is it really that funny? Uh, This was my senior uh, picture for high school. Um, I had a nice big helmet of hair, blonde hair that my dad dyed for me. Uh, Beautiful locks, right? Um, But this was my senior year of high school, and then this was college. My mom was really excited that I was finishing school. Um, And then this was my roommate for three of my years in college. And um, this, you know, when I think back to high school, I remember sitting on stage. We had our graduation at the Alabama Theater in downtown Birmingham. It's a beautiful theater. And uh, I remember sitting on stage and looking up and seeing my family there. And thinking how cool it was that my whole family was there to support me on that night. Uh, another, another big turning point, I think, too, are different times when I've lost grandparents. And one of the biggest things that sticks out in my mind of those particular instances is that the people that were there, the people that showed up for me uh, in those darkest moments. And this next picture is from our wedding day. Um, I, I think back to our wedding day and... We're not in this picture, unfortunately, but this is a picture that all of our friends, uh, and not all of them, but a good number of our friends from college, uh, they took this picture after we had already left. I don't know if they were super excited that we were gone, uh, but, but this was a picture, and, and I remember our wedding day, and I remember just thinking, wow, it's amazing that all of these people are here to support me and Allison. And just thinking about how that was such a special day because there'll never be a day the rest of my life that that group of people is gathered together ever. And that was just a very special day. And when we think about these turning points, all these events that we think back to, what's amazing is we always think about the people who were there. And people seem to always kind of just show up. Uh, maybe when you've lost a loved one, you think about a, someone who came to your house and sat with you, maybe just for a brief moment. or Maybe they sat for several hours just listening to you as you were going through a time of grief. But every single time, whether it's a big, exciting moment or a really difficult moment, we remember the people who were there with us. And that's just kind of the way family works. When... A family is hurting, or when a family is celebrating, family is there. And that is exactly how family works. And what's so incredible to me, in the Bible, God uses family as one of the primary metaphors for the church. Over and over and over again. I want you to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Verses 14 and 15. And Paul writes this. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. Notice how what he says in these next couple of words. In the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and butress 
of the truth. Remember this. The church is the household of God. The household of God. The church is a family. And the more you come to realize that, how true this statement is, the more you begin to understand why friends and family, people from our church, start to appear in your most difficult moments. Because when a family is hurting or celebrating, family is there for them. Jesus, when asked the question, who is my mother and who are my brothers? In Matthew chapter 12, verse 48, he responds in verses 49 and 50 saying this, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He recognized that whoever did the will of his father was his brother or sister or mother. And the apostles of Jesus followed this same example that Jesus set for them. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. One particular instance in Acts chapter 16, after Paul and Silas were released from from prison, Acts 16 verse 40 tells us that they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers and sisters, they encouraged them and then departed. And you can continue to look all throughout the book of Acts, and we read about times where the apostles visited their brothers and sisters at different locations around the globe. Because the apostles followed Jesus' example that the church is a family. And as a family, we are to be there for each other. And the, the, the family is the primary metaphor used over and over and over again in the Bible. Now, I believe that we do a good job of using this lingo. I think we do a pretty good job of using this lingo. We call this our church family. We refer to each other as brother and sister so-and-so. This is brother Alex. This is... Sister Allison. We refer to each other as brother and sister, but yet I think we oftentimes fail to actually act like a family. We like to call each other family, but we don't always act like a family. And in this series, and I'm continuing a series that Joseph started, and he's calling us to restore the church. And he's talking about different aspects of the church, and today we're talking about the church's relationships and while I talk about the church's relationships my goal today is to call you into a deeper relationship with the people that you're sitting beside the a deeper relationship with Christians than one that you already have I'm calling you to stretch yourself to become closer to the people that you worship God with closer to the people who worship the same God as you do I want you to look at Galatians chapter 6 Verses 1 and 2, and this is from our scripture reading this morning. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. We'll start reading that this morning. Brothers, here's Paul again, referring to Christians as his brothers. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be too tempted. 
lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So there are a couple of things we learn in this passage. One of the things we learn is that everyone, even Christians, will have burdens. You think about all the characters of the Bible. Oftentimes we read about these characters and the burdens that they faced. I think about Paul, who spent time in jail and who was even beaten almost to death and was eventually killed for his faith. You think about David, who was hunted down by the king who wanted greatly to kill him. He faced burdens. Abraham was asked to sacrifice his own son, Isaac, before God rescued him. And finally, I want you to think about Jesus, who in the garden said, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass pass from me. We are not promised a pain-free life. I'm sorry. We are not promised a pain-free life. In fact, the Bible pretty much promises us the opposite. As long as we live in a world that is overtaken by sin, we, even Christians, are going to face burdens. And not only do we learn in this this section of Scripture that we're going to face burdens, but we learn that God did not intend for us to face those burdens alone. Now, It was when David was all alone on the roof that he gave in to temptation with Bathsheba. Now, Satan knows exactly when we're most vulnerable. And Satan knows that we are most vulnerable when we are alone. Because God did not intend for us to be alone. David gave in to temptation when he was all alone on the rooftop. Peter was strong when he was amongst the other disciples. He said he would go to death With Jesus, but when Satan got him alone, even though he was a little bit far off, when Satan got him alone, he denied that he even knew Jesus. Not just once, not twice, but three different times. And after Jesus was baptized, Satan tried this exact same tactic on Jesus. Jesus went alone into the wilderness for 40 days. And that's when Satan decided to tempt Jesus. Because Satan knows that we are most vulnerable when we are all alone. And unfortunately, we live in a culture that celebrates being alone. We live in a culture that celebrates the strength of the individual. The strength of a single person. And we have started to isolate ourselves because we've started to believe that our culture says, what our culture says when they say, that we are stronger when we can stand on our own. Every year, the Oxford Dictionary declares one word, the word of the year. And you've probably heard this before, but back in 2013, and this was five years ago, the Oxford Dictionary declared the word selfie as the word of the year. Now, maybe you know what a selfie is, maybe you don't, but a selfie is when you take your phone, you pull up your phone, you smile, And you take a picture. That's a selfie. And you go online and you post a picture of yourself. Uh, Sometimes there's other people in it. Uh, A lot of times there's not. A, A true selfie, a real true selfie, is a picture of you on your own. And now, I know that this is just simply referring to a photo. But I think it kind of is descriptive of what has happened in our culture. 
where in our culture, it is celebrated when we show strength on our own. And we are, we are told that we are strongest when we are able to take care of situations on our own, when we are able to stand up to things on our own. But God did not intend for us to be isolated. And Satan knows that. And when you choose to isolate yourself, Satan will come after you. Because he knows that that is when we are most vulnerable. God intended us to face life together in the midst of, the, of relationships. And I want you to notice in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, I want you to look at what it really says when it says, bear one another's burdens. And the last part we often overlook. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Many may prefer to stand on their own. And, you know, it is important for us to have a relationship with Christ that we have built a personal relationship with Christ. We can't live on someone else's relationship. And so you must build your own personal relationship with Christ. But notice what it says in this verse. It says we are also supposed to be there for our brothers and sisters. And not just that because God wants us to, or not just because it's good for us, but notice what it says, to fulfill the law of Christ. By bearing one another's burdens and by being there for each other, we fulfill the law of Christ. You and I have a responsibility to be there for each other. It is our responsibility to be there for each other in tough times and in good times. It fulfills the law of Christ when we do that. And so this morning, I want us to stop and think for just a minute about some different things that we can do to be better at being there for each other, to be better at fellowship, to be better at building relationships. How can we do a better job of building good relationships in the church? So the first thing I think we can do is that we can commit to genuine Christian fellowship. In Acts chapter 2, 46, just after the church was established on Pentecost, it says that the early Christians were day by day continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. We aren't supposed to just be acquaintances. Christians aren't supposed to just be acquaintances that see each other a couple of times a week. We are supposed to share life together. We are supposed to share in the big moments of our life together. We're not supposed to just be acquaintances. Have people over to your house. Play games together. Play board games. Play cards together. Go to the movies together. Go out and eat. We need to be people who are in constant fellowship with each other. Because I promise you, it's easier to talk to people who you spend time with when something bad happens or something good happens. I guarantee you that the people you call to tell first are the people you spend the most time with. So why don't we start spending time with each other? And then when we do that, when something good or something bad happens, we're going to go to each other. Because those are the people that you care about. So start building true 
Christian fellowship with each other, the people that you worship with, the people that you spend time with. Number two, be determined to put forth the effort that it takes to be there for someone. Be determined to put forth the effort that it takes to be there for somebody. We talked about this in in class this morning, that sometimes being there for someone is not easy for us. In fact, sometimes it denies us the things that we want to do. Sometimes it keeps us from being able to fulfill the, the, the list that we set forth to do that day. Sometimes it's just not easy. But commit to taking a meal to someone who's in need. Or taking a meal to someone who maybe can't provide that for themselves. And I know some of you do a phenomenal job of doing that already. Uh, and this one is the same. Try sending a card to someone. Sending a card to someone who, who needs it. Who needs a little bit of encouragement. Or how about just sit and listen to someone who needs a listening ear. These are things that take effort. And if we're not willing to put forth the effort, then we're never going to build this true Christian fellowship that God calls us to. This deeper type of relationship that God calls us to have with people in the church. And if you're not willing to put forth that effort, you're never going to experience those true Christian fellowships. And number three, remember that God designed His church to live in relationship with each other. He calls us to have a relationship with Him, but He also calls us to have a relationship with each other. Your faith is not just about yourself. And God wants you to be there for each other. The entire world has been talking about the wild boars. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, A group of 12 soccer players and their coach who were trapped in a cave uh, in Thailand for over two weeks. And uh, I, I would say the name of the cave, but I would butcher it. Uh, it. And you can look it up online. I know some of you have been following it closely in the news. I know I was. Each day it was riveting to me to see how are they going to get these guys out. Uh, this rescue mission was not just a simple mission. Uh, it wasn't just a simple go in a cave and get these 12 soccer players and bring them back out. Uh, now these soccer players uh, went from ages 11 to 16, so they were very young guys, and then their coach was only 25 years old, so he's younger than me, and these, these boys were two and a half miles deep into this cave, and uh, this cave had been flooded by a monsoon once they got into it, and for an expert diver, I read somewhere that once this, these waters rose, that for an expert diver... To rescue one boy, it was going to take 11 hours round trip. Round trip. And a good portion of that was underwater because the cave was flooded. And so you've got a group of of kids who are back in the depths of this cave and the waters are rising and some of them were, were unable to swim. Some of them have never learned to swim. And so this was a really, really difficult situation um, and I want you to meet a couple of the men who, who played a part in their rescue. Uh, this first man is Ekapol. Ekapol was the 25-year-old assistant coach. I think he's on this next slide. This is him. 
I, want, I just want you to put some faces to these people. Ekapol is the 25-year-old assistant coach who led the boys in there, uh, and uh, he has gotten some criticism for taking the boys in there in the first place, uh, but they were going in there to complete this ritual that the soccer team did every year uh, where they would go into this cave and write their names on the cave. Uh, but they went to the same place that they normally go to. But when the flood waters started coming in, they couldn't get out their normal exit. And so Ekapol had to lead his team deeper into the cave to find high ground, which was on back in the depths of the cave. And once he got back there, he actually found a place that, uh, where they could get up on high ground and, and sit and be safe even when the, the uh, waters came. Uh, when they found this group 10 days after they had been lost in this cave, uh, because it was very difficult, like I said, these expert divers had to go in there to find these kids. When they found them 10 days after being lost, Ekapol, they said, was the weakest member in the cave. And the reason was, after he found high ground and he got him to safety, he gave every kid his food and his water to make sure that they were safe, make sure they had the nutrients that they needed. Not only that, but he taught them how to meditate. He taught them to meditate to keep them calm because he was afraid that they would panic, that they would have panic attacks. And so Ekapol... He, he turns out to be a true hero that took care of these boys uh, in the midst of the cave. You can look him up online and find these stories where parents of these 12 boys, they weren't coming out bashing him. They were coming out thanking him for taking care of him. This next guy I want you to look at uh, is the Australian doctor Richard Harris. Uh, he became part of the team and played an integral part of, of keeping them safe and getting them out. He was a doctor. In fact, he said he is said to have been the last member to come out of the cave. He is said to be the last man to come out of the cave uh, and after all the other boys were out. And after he emerged from the cave, he found out that his father had died while he was in the midst of the cave with those other boys. Uh, he was a hero. And he went back in the cave and he helped to determine which boys were, were most capable and ready to come out. And all of them were safe. But he, he sacrificed his own life and put them, those boys first. Uh, this last person I want you to, to know about is Saman Gunan. Uh, I'm sure you've seen his picture all over TV. Uh, but he was a member of the Thai Navy SEALs who came out of retirement. He came out of retirement to volunteer to help rescue the wild boars. And he was a diver. And his particular uh, role in this rescue is that he took 12 oxygen tanks into the cave to get back to the boys so they would be able to breathe, uh, and, and also their coach, so 13 oxygen tanks. And after delivering the oxygen tanks, one, one two at a time, on his way back, his own oxygen tank ran out of oxygen. And Suman actually died in the cave. He was drowned because he ran out of oxygen. Because he was more worried about getting the boys their oxygen than making sure his own oxygen tank was, was filled. And I'm sure he thought he had enough. But all in all, more than 1,000 people from 18 different countries 
were involved in the rescue of all 13 of these trapped members of the wild boar soccer team. And on Tuesday morning, after two and a half weeks, all 13 members were safely out of the cave. Now, this is an incredible story. And what I find so remarkable about this story is the people. The people who went and the people who helped to rescue these boys. People who were not even connected to them. There were people, American divers. There were divers from all over the world who went in to help these boys. And why would they rescue their lives to rescue these boys? Well, I believe it's because God instilled it deep within us that we are to care for each other and that we are to have relationships with each other. I believe that's in our hearts. I believe God put that there for us. I believe that God created us to be in relationships with each other. I believe that God did not create us to be alone. In this story of the cave rescue, no single person could have pulled off this rescue. And I believe that life is that way for us. That no single person in this room can get through life without each other. We need each other and God intended it to be that way. And not only did He intend us to be in relationships with each other, but God intended us to live in relationship with Him. And one way that happens is when we're baptized, we come into a perfect relationship with Him, and we actually come into contact with the blood of Christ. We do something with Him. God has called us to be in a relationship with Him, and He's called us to be in a relationship with each other, and I'm calling you to deepen your relationships with each other. Because I believe that to restore the church to where it was in Acts 2, that we must have genuine Christian relationships with each other. And if you don't have that today, I'm calling you to take the necessary steps to have the relationships with each other that God intended you to have and to have a relationship with Him that He intended you to have. And if you have a need this morning, I pray that you'll come forward as we stand and sing.